Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 108. Have you heard about the projects working toward getting Python to run in the browser? Maybe you'd like to try it out for yourself by building an interactive Python REPL with Pyodide and WebAssembly. This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, and he's brought another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We talk about a step-by-step project that shows you how to build a Python code editor in the browser using WebAssembly through Pyodide and CodeMirror. You're going to be hearing a lot about Pyodide in the coming months, and here's a chance for you to play around while building a small project. Christopher shares an article about the power of Python f-strings. It covers some lesser-known features like variable debugging, nesting, and detailed formatting. We also have a couple topics up for discussion this week. The two are related around finding work as a Python developer. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including the 2038 date problem, a primer about Python virtual environments, how to build a site connectivity checker in Python, a free book on digital signal processing in Python, and a project to build a voice-activated, password-protected wooden box. I just got back from PyCon, and I want to say thank you to all the listeners who came up and said hello at the RealPython booth this year. It was really great to meet you and talk to you. And through PyCon US, I met a huge number of potential guests that I'm looking forward to bringing to you over the next several months. This episode is brought to you by CData Software, the easiest way to connect Python with data. SQL access to more than 250 cloud applications and data sources. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher. Welcome back on the show. Hey there. Glad to hear you. Yeah. We have a handful of interesting articles this week, kind of a big discussion at the end and some more projects. But instead of sort of a news thing, you had a little different thing to start with, the tweet that you you wanted to bring up. Yeah, this is a pseudo discussion. Uh, It started when at XSS Bunny, which love the handle, tweeted that they'd attempted to take off the week of January 18th, 2038. And their boss denied the request because it broke the vacation system. (laughs) So if you're not aware, 2038 is one of those magic numbers that at least as a year can be problematic in computer systems. Uh, The POSIX standard for date time tracking uses a number that starts counting seconds since January 1st, 1970. And a positive number is after January 1st and a negative number is before. And this all comes about due to Unix being invented in the 70s, and it all seemed good enough then. And that's, you know, the the harbinger of problems, good enough. So if you're using 32-bit integers to count those seconds, you're going to overflow that value on January 19th, 2038. So for programmers, this would be a good week to have off. (laughs) Right. So for those of us who are old enough to have lived through Y2K, this is essentially like that all over again. 
But this time, when the date rolls around, most computers are likely to be 64-bit, which means you're not hopefully going to run into this problem. But smaller systems or embedded systems or older systems might still be 32-bit, and you know it could be a bit of a challenge. Right. We posted about this in PyCoders, and we included a link to the Wikipedia page that explains what the 2038 bug is. And deep down on that page is another link, which I fell down that rabbit hole, which is a list of (laughs) other dates that are problematic. There's over 40 of them. Okay. Even if you just stick with 2038, there's multiple problems. So there's Unix and Windows use very similar systems there, so they both could have this challenge. Then the digital video broadcast standard, which is what governs how a lot of satellites and cable transmissions work. Mm. It uses a different kind of counter. It's only 16-bit, but by coincidence, it also flips in 2038. So in April of 2038, that might start having problems. So even not just taking the week off in 2038 might not be good enough. You might need to take it the quarter off. <laughs> just take the year. <laughs> yes. This is my sabbatical. <laughs> yeah. T- yes. Retire in my version, in, in, you know, for, for me, right? There's issues with 2040, 2042, 2048, 2051. Like it just keeps going and going. <laughs> And seconds aren't the only problem. So 2079 is when a 32-bit day counter will overflow. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you're just counting the number of days from 1970, you're going to run into a problem. And then some astronomy programs have to worry about things like year counters. Like we always think of this as being a calendar problem. But if you're trying to model when that asteroid's going to show up in our neck of the woods again, that might be 10,000 years from now, right? So th- these are these are problems depending on the space you're in. Yeah, so, exactly. Like, <laughs> you got time before and after this whole span, yeah. Exactly, right? So I'll, I'll stop there because it could, it, the, the list goes on forever. But there's, there's one last thing that I kind of like, which is tongue-in-cheek, which is the year 292 billion problem. And that's when the 64-bit Unix value will overflow. So if you were smart enough to move to your 64-bit, there's still a problem. It's just a quite a ways into the future. The good news is most physicists believe that's probably past the lifetime of the universe. I'm pretty confident I'm not going to be around. Uh, so it's going to be somebody else's problem. <laughs> yeah, too funny. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, I wonder... Across all systems, you said it was a Unix standard that they chose the 1970 starting or epoch or whatever they, they yeah, call it. That, that's where it came from. It's the Unix, Unix epoch. And, uh, but because Unix was the operating system at the time, uh, you know, Windows, DOS, all that basically used the exact same mechanism. Yeah. There were some of the other dates in the list are mainframe specific and happen earlier than that. So, yeah, th- this is a. Uh, yeah, we, we didn't learn from our mistakes is really what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to learn how to you know make movies and stuff on, on the cheap back in 2007, 2008. And there were these things where like, okay, 48 hours, you have to make a movie. And they would, you'd meet on a Friday night and they'd give you like a prop and a, a line of dialogue and so forth. So you couldn't have done the work in advance and so forth. Right. And the guy joked, he's like, well, nobody's done a musical before. And and it's like, oh God, little like writing all this stuff and so forth, but like coming up with music, that's a lot. And so somebody did that one year and they did Y2K the musical. It was only, you know, like six minutes or whatever, but it was, it was pretty funny. (laughs) It's, I'm pretty sure it was a Simpsons Halloween episode did a segment on it. Oh Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> how the how the world would end in Y2K. So uh, and I suspect that was in Halloween of nineteen ninety-nine if you're if you're going looking for it. So <laughs> nice. Yeah, those are always good ones. 
Cool. So my first article, this is a, a real Python one. It's a topic that, oh my gosh, gets mentioned almost every single time somebody starts a project in Python, which is, it's titled Python Virtual Environments, a Primer. It was a an article on RealPython for a while and then kind of got rewritten from the ground up by previous guest, Martin Broyce. It's a great just resource, definitely bookmark it if you have questions about it, because it, it goes across all the kinds of questions you might have about it. Why? What are you doing? What's going on behind the scenes? But also just like a primer on how. How do you get started using Python virtual environments? And it's been updated. So there are code examples and console examples in Windows and Mac. There's a new thing that they've added on a, a variety of the real Python article pages where you can kind of click on a tab and it'll switch to show you what the code looks like either way in Windows or Mac and Linux, which is nice. Goes into creating virtual environments, activating them, installing packages into them, and then eventually deactivating one. But probably beyond the nuts and bolts that a lot of people are going to go to there, I think this is one of the most common questions I got. Even as a new Python developer in an office job, I was asked very often, you keep talking about virtual environments, like, what are they? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what are you doing and, and so forth. And so uh, I think it does a good job of explaining kind of what's happening and why you want to do it. And a lot of it has to do with as you develop code for Python, there's this need to add additional packages or software. We've talked about packaging a lot on the show. We've talked about PIP a lot on the show. And the default behavior for PIP is to install into your, your system Python. If you're not specifying those kinds of things, and that can become this whole messy sort of deal where you've installed a whole bunch of different things that you need to kind of maintain or update. And what if you go and you're going to work on a different project and it needs different types of requirements, different types of tools with it. And that's the whole idea is this sort of separation, avoiding sort of system pollution. It really separates the dependencies and the conflicts, but then also helps you with this idea of reproducibility of your projects and that whole like avoiding the, well, it works on my machine kind of thing. And so virtual environments really solve a lot of that. And this article goes very deep into it beyond the whys that I just sort of talked about. It talks about, okay, well, you know, what is it? It's this sort of folder structure and this isolation of your particular Python install in that sense. And then how does it do that? It gets into like copying the structure and the files and linking back to the standard library, modifying your paths, and then setting things so that you can run it anywhere with this absolute path. And then it gets into some other kind of interesting like little details on the end where, you know, how can you customize a virtual environment to change what the command prompt looks like, overwrite existing environments if you wanted to do that. What if you needed multiple environments, updating core dependency? So a whole bunch of really interesting stuff there. So I won't belabor the point, but I think it's a great resource if you've kind of scratched your head as to like, well, I kind of know the basic commands as to what's going on here. And they keep showing it to me in every single tutorial or article that I look at that I should be doing this. It can maybe help you with a little more of the why and the how and the what is kind of happening behind the scenes, which I really enjoyed that part of it. And then it has a little bit of a stuff on the end where we've talked about this a little bit on our, on the show where we've talked about there are different tools like VENV, which is built into the standard library in Python, which is great. 
is one of the ways to do this, but maybe you want to use different solutions, different tools for this. If you're in the data science world, Conda and the Conda Package Management and Environment Manager, those tools kind of like PIP in some ways, but it also includes this environment manager will help you create virtual environments. And that is one of the more popular ways if you're working in data science and a lot of those packages are kind of grouped and bundled together in ways to kind of work with that. And so that might be the way you look at it too. And a handful of other ways of managing multiple environments and so forth. So it touches on a little bit of that, but gives you like resources to go look at it. One of the things that I thought was interesting about you know, something that's come up a lot is now that you've created this virtual environment that gives you this resource where now when you go to install using PIP, these are the things that I like to add here. I want to install Flask or I want to install Django or I want to install requests or what have you. You know, it's being added into this virtual environment and you can specify then at the end of that, freeze your requirements and and do these other kinds of things. Very often people have said, you know, smartly that you should use this command of Python dash M to pip install. And what that's doing is it's specifying the current Python version that you're using, making sure that it's going there as opposed to installing, pip installing it into a system Python or maybe some other virtual environment. And I saw this tweet this morning from Tushar Sadwani. He wrote, my current solution is to add this to my bash profile and he's exporting pip underscore require underscore virtual env equals true. And so pip will reject all commands outside of a VNV. If a virtual environment is activated, pip will always install it in the right place. And so somebody else said, well, why isn't this the default? And not everybody's using virtual environments. Not everything needs it. And so it doesn't necessarily make sense as the default, but this would avoid... If you're in the know and you are using virtual environments, this might be a nice thing to add. So I'll include links to the tweet, which has some more details on it. But it's just a good article to kind of, it's literally a primer on (laughs) what's going on with virtual environments and where and how and what and all those kind of questions that anybody would ask as far as getting into using them. I hadn't heard about that shell variable before. That's a very cool thing i'm definitely gonna go go away and set that because uh, I, <laughs> I i make I, I make that mistake all the time particularly because i'm running like four or five different versions of python yeah uh, the other thing that it's uh maybe this is a you know it's obvious to folks but to me one of the real powers of virtual environments is being able to delete them so as i'm mucking around uh, particularly if i want to like hack somebody else's library and i go in and i, I play with that yeah. you can't always remember what state you left something in and you all you have to do is delete the entire directory and pip install dash r on your requirements file and you know you've level set to where you're supposed to be so there's a amount of a fair amount of power there yeah i really enjoy that part of it for this show and for the stuff that I do for Real Python, I'm constantly going through tutorials and articles and trying to follow along and making sure that you know everything kind of works as as planned. Or I'm researching this for to be able to talk about it on the show. And if I just simply just randomly install all these things into my system folder, it would be just a disaster. And I'd be you know uninstalling Python or doing whatever I can. I'd probably just be pulling all my hair out. It really has saved all of that. And the idea that you're right. Like if I made a mistake or I'm not sure what's going on here, the ability to just wipe out that folder and build another one is so 
it's not only is it quick and, and fairly easy, but it's kind of a nice, reliable way to check that, you know, everything's working right. Yeah. I have, I commonly have a foo virtual environment, which is for exactly that. <laughs> yeah. That's the clean foo, install some stuff, play around with it. Okay. Oh, I want to keep that. I'll go put it somewhere where it makes sense. Otherwise, I can just delete. Yeah. Cool. Your next one, I'm, I'm interested in because, uh, this is one of the very first things that I made as a, a video course on Real Python was on this topics. Ah, excellent. So uh, this is called Python F-strings are more powerful than you might think. And it's by Martin Hines. When Python introduced the format method, I'll tell you, I was kind of indifferent. I mostly kept using the old percent style formatter, uh, which I learned back in my C coding days. Then along came F-strings, and I've never looked back. Yeah. So in case there's some Python 2 folks listening, uh, an F-string is a template mechanism built into Python 3 that started with 3.6, I believe, uh, where you prefix the string with an F, hence the name, and inside the string you use brace brackets to indicate variable replacement. I find them far easier to read. So instead of placeholders in the string that you don't know what they are, you have little template variables that you can actually see and use. Yeah. So. In addition to specifying a variable in the string, you can also specify some formatting. So, for example, if you were trying to display a float called num, you could do open brace, then num, then a colon, then the decimal point to f, and then close the brace. And that would print num to two decimal places. So this is similar to the format portion of the old percent style strings. So Martin's article talks about some of the lesser known things that you can do with f-strings, and he starts out by talking about one of the format mechanisms, which is on dates. So with a date object, the part after the colon, that formatting part, is for the date, and it uses the same specifiers as the string f-time function in the date-time module. So essentially, you can skip that whole step of calling string f time to format it. You can just do it right inside of your f string, which was neat. And I hadn't come across that before. So that's kind of cool. Then he goes on to talk about one of my favorite features, which is you can add an equals sign after the variable name inside of the braces. And Python then prints out a handy debug, which shows both the name of the variable and its value. So uh, if you've got like a string that is normally part of your code and you're struggling with it, you can just stick that little equals in and it'll give you some more information as you're going along. Yeah, that was in 3.8. I, I talked about it in my, you know, what's new in Python 3.8. I love that. Yeah. Ah, right. Okay. So by default, when an object is handled by string conversion, it calls the special dunder string, that's double underscore str method. And uh, there's another method as well, which gets used in the REPL, which is dunder repper for representation. Another one that I hadn't come across before, so there's a lot of that in this article. Uh, <laughs> if you want the REPL style instead inside of your F string, you can annotate the variable with exclamation mark R. So again, another quick little formatting thing. He goes on to talk about how you can nest f-strings inside of your f-strings, uh, how you can do expressions, including conditional formatting. You can use lambdas. And to top it all off, uh, he talks about the fact that f-strings are the fastest of Python string formatting choices. So everything else being equal, this is the best choice. So all in all, a nice little article. Wasn't aware of the little bang r thing or the date piece. It's always nice to learn something new in a topic that you thought you knew well. So it's it's always kind of cool to pick that kind of stuff up. Yeah, I like how it kind of evaluates the code in it, which is is kind of neat. Like you said, with like you could do like a lambda in there and so forth. But yeah, and the debugging one, that was really handy when I saw that. I'm like, okay, gosh, that that skips a nice little step there. The the formatting stuff, 
it's pretty similar to how the previous formatted streams as far as like the percent sign they're almost all the same i think yeah i think it's all based on the same mini formatting language i've seen links in the documentation which can take you off to the built-in mini language inside of python i'm pretty sure it's consistent yeah there might be a couple minor variations but uh, it looks familiar if you've uh, used it before in the other formatting styles i'll definitely include a link to that for formatting strings um, for people to learn a little more about it if they're not familiar. CData software. Connect, integrate, and automate your data from Python or any other application or tool. At CData, we simplify connectivity between all of the applications and data sources that power business, making it easier to unlock the value of data. Our SQL-based connectors streamline data access, making it easy to access real-time data from on-premise or cloud databases, SaaS, APIs, NoSQL, and big data. Check out cdata.com to learn more. My next one was a lot of fun, actually. I had a a lot of fun kind of playing with this, and I, I had been looking forward to trying this out since I had heard about WebAssembly. This particular article is by Amir Tadrishi. It's on testdriven.io. It's titled Running Python in the Browser with WebAssembly. So WebAssembly sometimes had been pronounced WASM, and I was like, what? <laughs> what are you trying to say to me? I had heard Armin Roniker and Russell Keith McGee and Brett Cannon, you know, several different guests talk about it and how kind of excited they were about it. And I was like, well, you know, what's the big deal? And in the case of Brett, he was talking about, well, you know, he was unraveling Python to kind of think about what needs to be in the core of this so that we can fit this inside this WebAssembly version of Python. His last appearance on episode 93, he had said to me, you know, surprised that there's a team that's already done it and they got Python running inside of WebAssembly and it's using a thing called Pyodide. And so I'll include links to that project uh, along with this article. And the idea of the article is actually kind of a cool idea. And I had to think about it a little bit more as I kind of played with it. The project that you're building is a interactive REPL that's running Python. So you have basically two windows. You have your, you know, where you're entering your code in and then as you hit run, it's popping out on like a little console window on the side. The reason that I, I actually think it's a cool project to kind of build and actually might have a little more legs than just like, you know, the sort of throwaway project. His explanation is like, say you want to teach a Python course and you have a variety of students and they're at a variety of different levels and so forth. And maybe they just have like, I don't know, like a Chromebook or they have like some simple browser-based thing in there. And I thought about this as far as situations I've been in where you don't know. Like I, I went to a variety of meetups here that were sort of Python user groups. And one of the steps that they would go through, which I thought I really appreciated as, a, as an idea is, okay, you know, he's here for the first time. Okay, do you need help getting Python set up on your computer? I would usually be the person sort of volunteering, you know, because of my sort of education background with helping those people get Python sort of going on their machine, that can be 
a pretty quick process, a pretty long process. And it depends on like, are you going to explain what you're doing as you're doing it? Or are you just going to take over and just like, you know, make it happen? And so maybe there isn't time for that. If you want to show a bunch of people Python running the browser, this might be kind of a cool way to, to do that and also kind of teach some of these ideas as you go. When you load Pyodide for the first time, it takes a few seconds you know, via the browser, depending on your connection. It has to download about 10 megabytes. And that was always the conversation I was having with Brett, like this idea of reducing Python down. And there's things that, you know, there's limitations that Pyodide has. Like it doesn't do concurrency. It doesn't do, you know, a variety of different kinds of things that are in the library that you you think it might, you know, be able to do. And I'll, I'll include a link to some of that too, if you're interested to say, okay, you know, what's been sort of removed. So like curses and tkinter and turtle and, you know, virtual environments. <laughs> these are things that are not in Pyodide. And they've included some of these other ones of multiprocessing and threading and sockets, but they're not working at the moment. You can kind of see how that is. And it's basically making Python run in the client side of the browser. So basically you're downloading Python and it's running on your machine, not on you know their server. In the article, you go through some pretty simple code to kind of get going. You do use a virtual environment to set up a real simple Flask installation, and then you're running everything else out of a like an HTML document that has a whole bunch of script that are pulling in the things that you need. So one of them is from a CDN pulling in Pyodide. Some of the other stuff that you're bringing in is a tool called Code Mirror, which I wasn't familiar with, but is a is a JavaScript library that is a versatile sort of text editor, and it I guess it supports over a hundred languages. It supports split views, key bindings, auto completion, code highlighting, all this kind of stuff. So if you don't want to make a text editor, this is one of these things that you can, you know, use a script to bring in that JavaScript with it. And then they, they use like Tailwind CSS to kind of prettify it. But, you know, within two kind of chunky one HTML block uh, with a lot of these things that are doing script source equals and pulling in from a CDN these different tools. And then the other is a, a JavaScript that first of all, just kind of setting up what it looks like and kind of making Code Mirror look the way that the guy wants. But after that, it's just loading Pyodide and running Python at a prompt. It's really kind of cool. I, I was I had fun kind of setting it all up and, and getting it going, and it, it looks nice. And like I said, if you're going to do like a classroom situation, this might be a handy little thing as a, as a little tool that you could kind of just set up and have people play with. I'm sure there'll be lots of other solutions that are out there, but it's kind of cool that if you needed it to do custom things, you could, could modify it from there. Yeah, a couple of the major educational providers have these kinds of things built into their uh, into their commercial offerings. Yeah, so that you're doing Python in the browser. But this is essentially the article is essentially how would you build one of those? Right, right, and it's short. You know, like it doesn't require a whole ton of things, and that's kind of that big thing that Pyodide is adding. What normally would have been you know part of you know potentially a pay service to 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 do this, not always, but in some cases. And yeah, I was it was neat to kind of see all those tools working together. Uh, Pyodide, Code Mirror, and actually maybe interested in Tailwind CSS. That looks really kind of a nice, less than bootstrap <laughs> kind of thing for doing some CSS stuff. And then it just was my first chance to really play with Pyodide and play with you know Wasm, if you will, inside there. 
and we were talking about virtual environments before. There's this thing called MicroPip that's part of Pyodide, so that it can use other packages inside of it. And the documentation is really good. I mean, the project is is new. It's version 0.20.0. But you know, since November of last year, they've really been moving fast and and um, something to keep an eye on. The, the idea of getting your Python things running in a browser is definitely further along than I thought it would be by this point. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the day that uh, WASM allows me to not have to ever write a line of JavaScript ever again. <laughs> there you go. Just some CDN import. <laughs> exactly. Cool. So what's your next one? So this is a step-by-step project. It's a real Python article called Build a Site Connectivity Checker in Python. And it's by frequent contributor Leonidas Pozo-Romos. It's a step-by-step guide on how to build a script that checks whether one or more websites is currently online. Uh, we've talked before about how I think these kinds of guides are great for people trying to learn new modules. Yeah. Instead of trying to wade through dry manuals, this is a nice little project with a purpose that gets your feet wet with a bunch of different standard libraries. So that's great. It uses argparse for parsing the command line arguments, the HTTP client module for connecting to a website, and it talks about when to use that versus when to use URL lib. It uses URL parse and some file operation stuff as well. So there's all sorts of neat little pretty typical coding things inside of the project. He walks through everything, including how to start out by creating a, you guessed it, virtual environment. Your first code connects to like a single website, and then you add to that to check multiple websites, as well as reading a list of sites from a file to check. And if that's not good enough, once you're happy with all that, the article then ups the difficulty level a little bit and takes this from being synchronous checks to asynchronous. So to do that, you need to use async.io and a third-party library that does HTTP requests using async.io, which is called AIOHttp. So whether you're looking for a project to learn some new libraries or you just want to dip your toes into that very deep lake with alligators, which is called asynchronous programming, <laughs> yeah. uh, then this uh, this tutorial is a great place to start. Yeah, cool. How do you specify which sites that you're checking? Is that you kind of make a list of them or? It's done through ArcParse, so you can either pass in them on the command line or you can pass in a file that lists them off. Okay. Yep, and it, in synchronous mode, it just goes through and does one at a time. And in asynchronous mode, it fires them all up on the screen at the same time and checks them as they return. Nice. Well, that, that takes us into discussions this week. And the two that I kind of picked out from PyCoders for us to kind of go over, one is a, is a Hacker News thing, and the other is kind of related, but it's uh, a Reddit thread. And then I had some other ideas that I wanted to kind of include in it. I guess I'll, I'll kick it off. But the first one is what jobs can I have knowing Python, which is maybe not grammatically the best, but <laughs> the question is, I, I've known Python for a long time, but I've never done a proper project or earned money through writing Python code. I like the core of Python, but I'm not interested in any frameworks. I've used Python to write small scripts, to do small things like automation and stuff, but honestly, writing or even working on big projects seems terrifyingly arduous to me. As far as I have seen, almost all jobs related to Python are either back-end development using Django or something related to data. So the question at the end is like, well, are there other jobs that are related to using Python? It's kind of interesting. Like the the responses I, I thought were kind of all over the place. 
there are lots of little tangents that people grab, you know, it's the internet and hacker news. But the first was like, okay, well, you can do backend stuff like the person mentioned that you could get into DevOps automation and setting up a lot of the backend tools, learning what CICD is. We've had a guest on, and I definitely would like to talk more about this, but um, security, I guess there's multiple layers to that. There's like, you know, securing sites and so forth, but then there's also cybersecurity and, and sort of white hat stuff of like penetration testing and things like that. And then, a, you know, a huge one, which is obviously data science, which I'm guessing is where they're saying related to data. Data science really expands from there. There's so many different fields that that you could get into from there, which it could be research, could be financial stuff, the stuff that I was kind of playing around or modeling things in that world, a variety of different things. So those are some of the answers that I saw on there. And then it kind of devolved a little bit into like, do you need to use a framework? And it should knowing that be one of those things to help you you get into a job. And I just kind of wanted to ask you like what your what your thoughts are on this. And then I, I want a little I have a couple other thoughts on like other places and things that and skills that you need to be able to get a job, which is kind of the other thread too. Yeah, it's um Python's got like a really broad appeal. Yeah. And and I have no data to back this up, but I suspect it's probably one of the languages get, that has the widest appeal. Like, uh, there's all sorts of generic languages out there, but Python seems to have definitely been picked up in a lot of different sectors. Yeah. And that kind of makes it hard to answer his initial question, right? Hey, what job can't you do <laughs> with Python? <laughs> yeah, so the flip side of it is actually, is there an industry you're interested in? And that might be what, you, you know, that, that might yeah. be one way of approaching the problem, right? So yeah. what industry are you interested in? And, and if there are, then maybe you can go find a coding job in it, right? There's, there's a possibility there. He made the comment in the question about, you know, I'm not interested in the frameworks. And I suspect what he means by that is things like Django, because he, he seemed to be put off by the, the web piece, right? Right. But uh, very few coding jobs are going to be without some sort of frameworks. But this comes back to that industry thing, right? So right. you want to figure out what industry you're in. And if you know if we're doing science stuff, then it's like NumPy and Pandas and Scikit-learn. And if you're DevOps, then there's AWS and Google and Azure modules. And if you're in the film industry, then you know maybe it's Blender plugins. Yeah, yeah. So like the list sort of goes on. So you almost have to start out backwards first as to where you want to be and what you kind of want to specialize in. It's a little challenging for me because I came up through exactly what he is saying he doesn't want to do. So like my background really is in the, okay, go do the web stuff and build code for people. But even within that space, you bump into other folks, right? Like I know plenty of sysadmins who do Python scripts and no script is over like 200 lines. They just have a lot of them. They, they have these things that they help automate their day-to-day job. Right. And even in the dev space, that the specialty of DevOps is its own thing, right? Knowing how to build the pipelines and, you know, how to push stuff out to the cloud and all the rest of it is kind of a meta thing that is necessary for deploying all that web piece. And it's a different skill set and it's a different job. So even in that web land, there are non-web land programming jobs. Yeah, the stuff that, you know, kind of as an offshoot, the stuff that excited me in some ways, and this maybe was my area of, if you want to call it data science, was data analyst kind of stuff. And and that got me into visualizations and those libraries. But the word analyst, it, you put another 
noun or whatever in front of it and it can mean so many different things and and you kind of need to i think drill into the job descriptions you know i thought about just like well we could just bring up what are the current jobs that are available like on our python job board for pycoders even if you look at some of the requirements sometimes they will mention frameworks sometimes they won't and it kind of leads me into the, the deeper conversation of like what you need to be is is flexible. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and there's there's like there's really sort of four levels to knowing a language, and you don't need to be at level four. Level one is do you know the language, like the keywords and that stuff, and that's your basic pieces. Then you start getting into do you know the things that are part of the standard libraries because that's what makes you successful. And then you, now you start getting into the industry-specific stuff. Do you know the libraries that are out there that makes your job easier? And then level four, which most people don't even have to think about, is could you write the language, right? Like, are you into the compiler side of it? Right. Most jobs are level two or level three. And back to that framework question, you don't need to know all of them. You need to know the ones that are in the industry as to what makes sense for you. You know, it's all part and parcel of trying to figure out how to, you know, what what you're interested in doing and what'll help you get up in the morning. Yeah, there was like a thread that kind of went further into that, that devolved, and I think there's a, a certain amount of people that have a distaste in some ways with this concept of like what a framework is, and so it went to this uh, link to Joel on software and this post that's like why I hate frameworks, and the idea it, it's kind of a silly story of like. You know, I want to build a, a birdhouse. So I went to the store and the store kept saying, it's like, well, you can't just buy a hammer. You need to buy, you know, a, a factory that builds hammers. And well, we don't actually sell that anymore. We, you know, have all these other universal hammers. And it was just like kind of this ridiculous idea of like, those are bad frameworks. Good frameworks are you go to the store and, oh, look, there's a birdhouse. I'm done. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing I think that's kind of interesting. Like, you know, I had my own experience when I was, trying to decide what the next languages I was going to mess with, you know, five, six years ago. And I started to delve into JavaScript and that was the biggest conversation, you know, and I'm like, well, okay. And it was always moving so fast. And my problem with it, unlike what I found in the Python community is just, it was very hard to find people that were kind of being helpful and not being, like super opinionated one way or the other about stuff. And it was just kind of a, a less inviting thing. Maybe it's changed now, but that was how JavaScript was for me. And so I was kind of turned off by it. I feel like a lot of the frameworks that I talk about here, yes, there's new ones and so forth, but people decide on some standards, <laughs> you know, depending on the industry that you're in and and they're going to be helpful. JavaScript doesn't really have the standard library that Python does. And uh, and it's also a bit more of a broken language. So a lot of the frameworking that happens in the JavaScript world is to compensate for it being JavaScript. Uh, and so there's a whole bunch of things that you would have to use a third-party library for, if which is just built into Python. So I think that's part of what sort of separates those two things and i think that it changes a little bit of what how much of the churn there is and then javascripts although you know node gets used for other things it is still primary the web language and because of that the other aspect of it is you end up with a lot of frameworks because they are a lot of them are trying to figure out how best to interface with, with html and css right front end back end 
well, and they're both other things that are rather broken and badly designed, right? So you've just sort of got Band-Aid on top of Band-Aid on top of Band-Aid. So it definitely kind of gives the, you know, the framework thing a bit of a bad uh, name. And not to say we don't have our own challenges in the Python world and some things are easier than others. Right. As with anything, if you're trying to pick up a framework, now you got to learn the framework, right? Right. And some of them are more opinionated than others. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It dives deeper into one of the topics of this week. It's titled Using Python's Date-Time Module. It's based on a RealPython tutorial by Brian Weber. And in the course, my co-host, Christopher Trudeau, takes you into the messy world of wrangling with dates and times, including how to use the date-time module, growing your understanding of how to work with dates and times, and the challenges they present for a Python developer, what the zone info module does, and how to use it, how to calculate the differences between two date-time objects. As you may already know, shifts due to daylight saving time and time zones complicate any computing with dates and times. This course is designed to help you get up to speed and tackle some of this complexity. Real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. One of the things I wanted to kind of just do a little focus on, because it kind of gets into the other discussion, the Reddit thread, which is projects for a self-taught dev and how to help get a job through projects that you do. And I, I do want to talk more about that, but I it this post came up this morning where somebody had shared this, the World Economic Forum, a recent article, these are the top 10 job skills of tomorrow and how long it takes to learn them. And a lot of the job, quote unquote, skills go beyond programming. One of the things that they stated in there is 50% of all employees will need sort of reskilling by 2025, there's a lot of these skills like critical thinking and analysis and complex problem solving and active learning and analytical thinking and and so forth that kind of go beyond, you know, the core of like, you know, learning programming and learning a specific language or learning a specific framework, but being flexible and understanding how technology is solving problems, which is why I got into program. I love problem solving. And that's literally like the last one is reasoning, problem solving, and ideation. Uh, One of the things I was told, I remember being told in university, and that was quite some time ago, was within five years of graduating, 50% of us wouldn't be doing the engineering we were being trained for. Huh. Right? Because exactly as you say, right? Like you end up... The the specific engineering? uh, uh, Well, so it was more about the fact that you end up in leadership roles or project management roles or whatever. So not that you're... It's not like, okay, now you're going to be at McDonald's. It was was that, you know, you've been trained to design such and such and half of you probably will not be designing such and such five years from now. Yeah. As the job market changes and as technology advances, uh, you you kind of have to do that over a lifetime. And, and we we kind of learn, uh, we kind of live in a learning eco- economy now, right? So if you've got a right. programming style job, you're either going to have to pick up that new, new framework or you're going to have to pick up that new 
programming language and you're going to have to know how to interact with people. And, uh, you know, you have to, knowing how to debug is a skill in itself that translates from one language to another, but it's not something that necessarily shows up in a job description. Can you debug? Everyone says, yes, of right. course I can, right? Like, <laughs> so yeah, there's there's definitely some, I, I, I don't want to call them, there's some of it, there's, some, there's definitely some soft skills, but there's also these hard skills that are transferable that aren't specific. And, and uh, both of those things uh, very much go into whether or not people will be happy to hire you or whether people will be happy that they hired you. Yeah, one of the things I mentioned to you is like one of them on there is leadership and social influence. And you were jokingly saying that's like social influence isn't, you know, being good on TikTok or whatever. <laughs> it's the ability to communicate with a team and get your ideas across and be able to influence things within a workplace to, to like move things forward. That's a huge part of it. Like just so much stagnation uh, inside of companies. My happy place with a coding team is in front of a whiteboard with a couple of smart engineers trying to solve a problem. And when we leave the room, nobody knows who any of the ideas belong to, right? Like that's that's the good place to be in a design spot, right? And if you're the one who isn't speaking up, then you're not contributing to that, right? So there, there's this balancing act between enough assertion and enough, you know, be standing by your ideas as well as enough, oh, well, if I take a bit of my idea and we mix it with your idea and that idea, we'll end up with something better, right? And, and again, that's that's a social skill and that's something that takes a little bit of practice. And that will take you a lot further than can you name 10 Python keywords? Yeah, and so then the other conversation of doing projects to add to like a GitHub repo to, to basically show that, you know, I know the language and and so forth was an interesting one because the person had played around in things like Pygame and some of these other libraries and they, they were very reluctant to share that stuff because they felt like, well, it only shows me kind of messing within this library and... Pygame is designed for games and I'm making like an audio analyzer or algorithm visualizer or something like that in it. You know, I had listened to some conversations on some other tech podcasts. Literally having like some things in your GitHub account like that show that you've done some coding is maybe better than <laughs> having nothing. One of the things it shows is you know how to do Git. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Like that in itself isn't something everybody knows how to do, right? So like, right. even if it is just a, hey, I've got a dummy project and I want to play with it. I, you know, the hiring process, there's kind of two different aspects to it that are sort of related. One is the HR filters, right? Right. So, the, and that HR filter is people who don't even necessarily understand. They're looking for keywords on your resume. And you having them or not having them may or may not get you to that job interview. And there's ridiculous versions of these all the time, right? Like, you know, every once in a while, you'll see something on Twitter where somebody's like, must know Python, have to have 40 years experience or something ridiculous, right? Um, <laughs> right, right. And my favorite one of those was uh, was a library maintainer uh, posting to Twitter that they needed five years of experience in the library that he had built a year ago, right? And you right. See, you see, like a specific library that is his. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So you see these once in a while. Uh, but the flip side of that is, and you you sometimes have to get through those filters, and unfortunately, that's just part of the game of trying to get hired. But the important part is that aspect of the actual hiring manager and those teams. And that experience varies widely. Some of it's based on the company's culture. Some of it's on the personalities that are involved in the hiring process. 
So like, I know I personally have hired people who do not code in the language I was hiring for because I knew that they had, they, they had to show that they were interested because that's what the job was. Right. But I could see from their resume that they were good coders. And the conversations we had was they had, you know, they understood the ideas. And I knew that three months from now, although that first three months would be slow, they'd be better than somebody who just ticked the right boxes. The challenge, of course, when you're first getting started is trying to find that first chance. And the two things that I often, well, three things, one, which we already just talked about is get some code up on GitHub, and that at least helps the hiring manager see that you can do this. Uh, The other thing would be volunteering, and that might be just actually volunteering somewhere because they, all sorts of charity organizations need computer savvy people. So you might, you know, get a little bit of experience doing something. It helps putting some stuff on your resume. And it might also be volunteering from what we were talking about a couple episodes back of, you know, commit some code to an open source project. Those are things that can can definitely be of value. And then the other thing that I would talk about is, uh, quite honestly, uh, get get in front of people. So meetups are a great place to have uh, conversations with folks. Yeah, uh, We haven't run the one in Toronto for a while, but uh, when we used to, uh, we would frequently have like a segment, which is basically, okay, in break number two, everybody who is currently looking for developers, go stand in those corners over there and put your hand up. And then anyone who was looking for jobs could wander over into that corner. That allows you to at least have some conversations with people. You can learn what the, you know, what the different companies are like. You can often find smaller places where there's a lot more flexibility and a lot less of that HR filter thing going on. Fang interviews are their own thing. Right. Getting in, you know, being person number five in a startup that's got uh, currently has four people is a whole other uh, piece. And you're going to need things like the meetups to find those things. Yeah. How large were those meetups? Like how many people were there? Uh, the ones in Toronto were about 30 people, typically. Uh, we ran them about once a month. Uh, a couple of the key organizers have disappeared off face of the planet, and they haven't run in a couple of years now. But uh, yeah. that's pretty typical. Yeah, I'm hoping th- there's a resurgence of that. Uh, our one here in Colorado Springs, it's Pie Springs, but anyway, it uh, it went virtual, and they kept trying to keep it going every you know every other week here. And I, I, I hopped on some Zoom calls with them and kind of figured it out. But yeah, I think that's a fantastic way. Like that was, you know, one of the things I wanted to reach out and just, you know, meet people there. And I've had people, you know, reach out from that community and say, hey, we're looking for this kind of developer or whatever, because they saw me on there. And and so, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to kind of get out there. But just doing projects, I think, is a huge thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and to plug the newsletter, PyCoders has a job section and uh, also has an event section. So the job section, obvious, but the event section often is filled with things like meetups. Yeah, and a lot of them are virtual. Yep, a a lot of them right now are virtual and and they vary from, uh, I try to mix it up as to where they are so that they're not just, say, you know, West Coast, United States, East Coast, United States kind of thing. After a couple letters, you may find something that's in your neighborhood. Yeah, cool. All right, well, I think we should move into projects and I think I'll start. Okay. So I found a, a book, and I've heard about this book, I don't know, a handful of times. And I didn't know that you could access it free online. And so maybe you're like me and didn't know that also. But this is one of these things where I have this conversation very often at the end of my you know shows where I'm doing an interview. And I'll say, you know, what do you want to learn next? And this is probably one of those for me. Like, I need to set aside the time to do it. 
The book is called Think DSP, Digital Signal Processing in Python. It's by Alan B. Downey. And the book is available free online. And you can obviously buy a hard copy. You know, a lot of people, especially for programming books, love having a physical copy that can kind of annotate and so forth. There's an HTML and a PDF version that you can, and he's sharing it in a Creative Commons way. I've wanted to learn more about signal processing and fast Fourier transforms and all those kinds of like really deep concepts of analyzing it. And this one, it starts out with a lot of audio stuff, which again is a thing that I'm into. And the book has a great, he actually has gone and moved it into not only like a, like a GitHub project you can get to, but if you click on some of it, it'll open it up in a, a Google Colab, Jupyter Notebook. And I was able to just kind of just look at some of these things in Alan's like the book is from 2015. It is using, like he created his own library to kind of do a lot of the stuff kind of behind it of doing spectrum analysis. And there's an actual like think DSP library that you're importing stuff from that does a lot of it. But I think that would be an interesting library to definitely to tear apart and, and look up, look at as you go. But I just like it. It's, it seems like a very interactive book and along with these interactive Jupyter Notebooks, you can kind of play with it. And he, I think he, I mentioned before iPy widgets on here. There's some, some of that kind of interactivity stuff there that you can run and play with. So if you're interested in learning more about digital signal processing or that sort of area of cross-section of science and video and audio and waveforms and things like that, I, I think this would be a, a really great resource for you. And, and, you know, the fact that you're learning it in Python is, was kind of the, the icing on the cake for me. What's your project this week? So, yep, we're going to wrap up with something that's kind of fun. This is by a gentleman named John Pender, who has built a little wooden box with some lights on it and uh, painted it with some Tolkien Elvish. The lid of the box has some solenoids on it, which when they stick out, lock the lid on the box. And using a Raspberry Pi and some voice recognition software, you speak friend in Elvish, and that opens the box. So, if you're not as much of a geek as I am and that particular password seems weird to you, go find Lord of the Rings movie and uh, it'll all be clearer. Just look out for the octopus thing. <laughs> anyway, so uh, John details the work he had to do to build the project right down to how he uses the router to, to refine and build the wood and everything. Uh, so this isn't obviously just something you can do on the command line, but it's fun and I like the spirit of it. And if you're into the hardware hacking stuff, the article isn't quite step-by-step, step, but there's enough in here that if you've done something like this before, it can inspire you to create something new. And if not, it's uh, it's a fun little toy to, to look at and, and at least see uh, the code that's attached to pieces. Yeah, cool. This one's on uh, hackaday.io and seems like there's a lot of cool kind of projects if you're into the sort of physical computing and stuff. Oh, yeah. And that's another area that I'd love to play in. There's a whole sub-community on this stuff, and and some of them go crazy with things. And, and it ranges from, I'm going to do this cool little thing to circuit pie to I'm building this complex thing that requires a programmable router. So there's there's all sorts of <laughs> uh, all sorts of levels of uh, skill involved here. If, if you want something that isn't just, uh, you want to get away from your computer and accidentally cut off a, a finger and claim you were doing it while you were programming this is a great activity to get into awesome thanks again for bringing all that PyCoder's goodness on the show always a pleasure all right talk to you soon don't forget 
You can get simple cloud data connectivity to SaaS, big data, and NoSQL from Pandas, SQL Alchemy, Dash, and Petal. Learn more at cdata.com. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey. I look forward to talking to you soon.